0: Bankless Nation macro is on the menu for the special live stream that we are doing. Whatever happened to the recession? That's the question on my mind and on David's mind. We're going to ask that of our next guest. Was it delayed? Was it canceled? Or maybe it's already here and we just don't know it yet. David, we have the head of research on from Coinbase. uh, And our guest's name is also David. So Mm -hmm. I am between two Davids on today's episode. Introduce this topic for us. (laughs) I I don't know yet. I can't wait to experience the David effect, but why are we talking about macro and uh, who do we have on today?
1: The uh, time for macro uh, for uh, 2022 was the year (laughs) of macro. Macro has you all flustered. Yeah, it has me all flustered, right? And for a while, it was the theme that we wanted to talk about. It's macro, macro, macro. The the last time I think we talked about macro was the Silicon Valley banking crisis. I don't Mm -hmm. even know if that's considered macro, but all of a sudden- Macro seems to have been gone from the limelight. And so the question is, like, why are things so quiet? Are things, are we in the all clear? Did we get the soft landing? Is that what this looks like? Or are things a little too quiet? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are things quiet? Like, there's many different things to talk about that are going on in the macro land. Uh, The state of inflation. Uh, Why are equities so high? Uh, Is what's the Fed going to do when they meet in a few weeks here at the end of this month? uh and what's to deal with the correlation between crypto and stocks uh yield and dollar at all-time highs can we start to pattern match some of these things and what can it tell us about q4 2023 and 2024 and beyond
0: yeah i feel like this is uh things things are quiet a little too quiet i I feel like this is the part of the the horror movie well where everything is is quiet and you're just in the suspense you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop so maybe that's part of it uh david before we get in though we got a quick psa and this psa is for ourselves It's for a month. this is all about becoming a bankless citizen so mm-hmm. you are listening to this episode of bankless which means you are an enjoyer of the podcast at least we hope you are you're you're not a um just listening to this out of pure hate uh there is the potential for you to become a bankless citizen we don't often talk about this on the podcast but there are a slew of tools that you unlock by becoming a bankless citizen one of which is the premium feed the citizen premium feed we call it this is a dedicated rss feed with bonus episodes and it's completely ad free as well and you get mm-hmm. that uh, as a result of becoming a citizen. There's also some really cool features that we've added here lately, including the token hub, which is our bull neutral rating on our website for various tokens. Uh, we've just uh, rolled out an airdrop hunter uh, is an opportunity to see which um, which airdrops, uh, w- which potential quests you can go on and, and potential protocols you could test out for airdrop eligibility. And I think this is probably my favorite new feature. This is uh, bankless claimables. You put in your eth addresses basically it tells you what you can claim on chain i i didn't know this actually but i've j- i just recently looked at this i have apparently 103 dollars mm-hmm. in one of my eth addresses here that i can go claim better go so, claim it. yeah uh what else would you say about citizenship david what are the benefits of a bankless citizenship
1: yeah i bet uh, a lot of people are listening to this podcast on their podcast player that premium rss feed the ad free rss feed also goes there so ryan's showing it on his screen but uh, most people just listen to the ad-free RSS feed natively in their podcast player. That is a link that you get only as a citizen. Uh, and just all of these perks and, and things in the Bankless app that we've put together is really just meant to be the toolkit to help you live a Bankless life, to help you navigate the world of crypto, uh, navigate away from the traps, uh, and just do it in a much easier way. So it's, it's supposed to be a much more fluid way to live in the world of crypto.
0: I was muted there, but absolutely. We're yeah. Either. And what, one of my favorite parts too is the uh, the bankless community that you get to to join when you become mm-hmm. a citizen and and uh meet everybody on Discord, participate mm-hmm. in our live events, all of these I've things. I've
1: got my own uh my own channel inside of Discord it's called Ask David Anything where you are allowed to ask me anything. I anything? will answer them. Really? Anything? Anything. So that's yeah. a, that's a donation from my friend. Yeah, I actually uh, prefer the non-crypto questions. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a there's a link in the show notes if you, if you, if you guys want to check that out. Um, David, going to this episode, I have just one overarching question for you before we br- bring on David here and introduce him um, to the Bankless Nation, which is uh, why does macro matter? Hmm. So there there are many people in crypto who I know just don't pay attention to macro at all. They just that's a you know superfluous thing. It's not uh, relevant to crypto markets. Would you make that argument, or you know, why are we even doing a show on macro in general? Like, we must think it's important. Why?
1: Yeah, certainly. Well, what finance is is a big, gigantic mesh network of interconnected variables, Uh, and so crypto is a story of crypto growing up is becoming a relevant macro player. Uh, Bond yields, as we've known in 2022 and 2023, does impact the valuation of our assets. Uh, The macro conversation is the regulatory conversation, which is the Bitcoin ETF conversation. And so all these variables are worth considering when we make informed investments about the future because macro is, is about predicting the future.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also think that understanding macro helps you understand crypto better. Mm-hmm. in the same way that understanding crypto helps you understand macro better we are of course creating a new financial system and we, we should learn lessons from from the old one if we're going to move past it and, and build a better financial system so guys we'll be right back with our conversation on whatever happened to the recession but before we do we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible including our friends over at kraken kraken is our number one recommended exchange for 2023 go create an account
1: Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1 with flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now, Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Layer 3, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you're a developer, enterprise, or user, Arbitrum Orbit Let's you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. So visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app with Arbitrum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Hiring people worldwide, paying them in crypto, providing them access to benefits, it all so complex. But it doesn't have to be. Complying with labor laws, payroll rules, tax obligations, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly. And it's drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. But there is good news. TOKU is here. TOKU is the first employment and compensation platform for the crypto industry that makes this easy. TOKU helps you hire employees or contractors. and. Pay Pay them in fiat or crypto legally, compliantly, and with all the taxes handled in over a hundred different jurisdictions. So whether you're an early stage company with just a team of two, or you're an enterprise with 200, Toku has a solution that meets your needs. Toku is already working with the leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So transform your employment and token payroll operations with Toku. You can reach out to Toku at toku.com slash bankless, or click the link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, I would love to introduce you to David DeWong, head of research at Coinbase, leading Coinbase's institutional research effort, efforts for their institutional clients. David both speaks macro and crypto, which is why we're having him on the show today. We haven't done a macro show in a while. It's been a little quiet out there. Is no news good news or is it a little bit too quiet? David is going to help us answer that question. David, welcome to Bankless.
2: Hey, thanks a lot, David. Thanks, Thanks, Brian.
1: So I want to start with that that question. We haven't done a macro show in a while. Why Why not? Everything kind of seems to be going all right. The economy's not falling apart. We don't seem to be having that uh, recession that we were so worried about at the start of the year. How does the whole idea that everything seems to be going all right check out with you? How of just five check on that statement?
2: Uh, everything's going fine, and that's my segment. So I, no, um, I would <laughs> say... <laughs> Uh, I think the expectations at the beginning of the year were that we were going to get recession because there was this recency bias in people's minds, right? The big signal that people kind of look at, at least in the finance world, for whether recession is coming or not, is this idea of the inversion in the yield curve and the curve inverted. And so we said, well, recession is coming. Let, let's all panic. The problem with that is that doesn't tell us anything about the timing of when these recessions occur. Like the timing for when you see the curve actually invert and when a recession happens can be anywhere from 120 days. It could be 400 days. So we are still well within that window of possibly seeing it. But a lot of us kind of look at indicators like, well, the labor market seems to be doing fine. Like uh, we just got some jolts numbers that say we have 9.6 million job openings available in the United States. So compared to 2001 when we had four, or 2008 when we had four, the previous kind of recessionary periods, like that seems like a lot. And it is. The problem is that the changes in these things, like the, the Delta, uh, are actually already peaking, or if they've already peaked in in many of these cases, and we're actually moving down. And the other big problem is that the relationships that we're familiar with uh, traditionally in macro, they're not working. And I think this is actually the biggest challenge because generally things happen like the Fed hikes rates and then the economy weakens, right? And of course, there's long and variable lags, which the Fed talks about. But this time around, the Fed's hiking rates and the economy's doing pretty well. Like the housing market, like housing prices are rising. You don't see that when mortgage rates are at seven percent, for example, or uh, you know, in the last few months, the dollar has been very strong. But oil prices keep rising. That is not a traditional relationship. Generally, when the dollar is strong, you don't see oil prices or energy prices like this. Right now, you know, you mentioned yields. Yields have been the biggest concern uh, for a lot of investors. They've been rising, but up until Q3, for example, gold prices have actually been stronger, which is. Again, that's not something. So, like, you have all these historical relationships that just don't work right now, and I think that's more concerning uh, more than anything else.
0: One one question, David, here about this yield curve inversion. Um, you you seem to maybe be preparing us for uh, for for some sort of discussion on um, like a recession is only a matter of time. I feel like that's maybe part of what you're in, implying. So. The, the yield curve inverted, and historically that has been a sign that we're going to get a recession, right? And and you said that doesn't necessarily tell us when we'll get the recession. could be 100 days out, could be you know, many hundreds of days out, and we just don't know. But does it actually guarantee that we will get a recession? How about the case where yield curve inverts and we don't get a recession? Right, is that a possible forecast, or do you think a, a recession is, is pretty much a guarantee It just is um, the, the only dependency is on, on the timing and the, and the when.
2: So I will say this, and this is probably going to hurt all the macro analysts, whoever will come after me. We don't know anything. I'll be completely <laughs> like frank about that. We, we really have no clue. You know, like the, the best part about inflation is that like, you know, oftentimes the feds like, well, you do this and then inflation's going to come down or go up depending on what we wanted to do. Like a lot of, there's actually papers written by former fed officials who basically say what I just said, who basically we have no clue how inflation works by the way. Like we we said all these things. We have no clue how it works. Can, Can I
0: ask? Yeah. Can I ask a higher level though? That Like if we have no idea, you know, how any of this works or what's going to happen, then why do a macro show? Why are you in, you know, macro at all? Like, doesn't this go back to the intro of like, why talk about macro? Why can't we just put the blinders on, invest in kind of what we know and just ignore the, the chaos that's going on outside because no one knows anything about anything.
2: A big part of that has to do with it's a social science. You know, it's, it's a one where we testing because a lot of it depends on human behavior. And a lot of these variables I was talking about in terms of why don't these historical relationships work? Well, all of them have an answer to it. Um, All of them, it could be geopolitical, it could be that, you know, for example, the economy is doing very well right now, because I believe that the government is spending significantly, like, we are seeing a lot of fiscal stimulus inside of this economy that's propping it up. And this is different from what we've seen in previous cycles. Like right now, the US government is acting pro cyclically, which is to say it's working, actively working against the Fed in terms of the Fed's attempts at cutting rates and trying to you know, get the economy weaker so that inflation actually comes down. Like the reason we've had this odd, these odd dynamics can be explained and we have to try to explain them. But the problem with it is that a lot of times we don't know what the final answer is, like with the reality until ex post, until after the fact. Like so, until we actually see it happen, we're like, we're just kind of guessing.
0: So David, we can't necessarily use history uh, in order to kind of uh, predict the future. But you are saying, you are saying it is possible to kind of gather all of this data and look at what's going on and actually read the tea leaves and and, and actually create some uh, predictions, a predictive model on what might happen
2: next. That's right. You know, like... I think that the, you know, and this is, I'm not an economist. Um, You know, I've I've trained as an economist and I've had these things, but like, I'm actually a strategist, which is a little bit different because I generally use what I understand in terms of the economic variables and what's going on in the macroeconomic environment to kind of inform my decision-making as far as investments are concerned. Um, But I will say that, You know, oftentimes what we kind of get with these kinds of variables, like we have to understand, like, where does it where could it work out of sample and where are the changes from what we're used to in history that is making this situation possibly different from all the others? That's that's kind of what we're always trying to analyze in order to kind of get a better understanding of what kind of trading environment are we in to trade crypto or any asset?
1: I think the answer to to Ryan's question is like, why why do we do macro shows? To me, like people that look at the macro landscape, it's it's they're all looking everyone's looking for a story to be told. Here's uh, what uh, oil is telling us. Here's what yields are telling us. Here's how this part of the story fits to that part of the story. And ultimately, it's a prediction of the future, which means that to some degree, all the stories will be wrong in some sense. Some will be more wrong than others. Some will be on target. And so I guess David, we're bringing you on here as a storyteller to see the story that you are are seeing in all of these different variables. And, and one of them that you painted that I think is a place to, to start this story is all of the government fiscal spending that has happened uh, since the Silicon Valley banking crisis, but maybe also even earlier than that. Uh, if we accept that as the beginning of this story, can you walk us through, through that story? Why is this an important part of the story of the economy? Yeah,
2: so... You know, and to your kind of point, I would say like the only guarantee we have at the end of all of these things is that half of us will be happy and half of us will not be happy. Like someone's going to get it right based on what call and some of, them, some of us will not. Uh, so, I mean, there are really two reasons why I think the U.S. economy has been doing so well. And I say that because, oh, like a lot of the other places in the world, things are not going well, like Europe, you know, they're, they're suffering from some countries are suffering from stagflation, for example, China's economy is not doing very well, they're going through a period of deflation, uh, you know, so the US has been exceptional. In fact, that's what we we say, this is a period of US exceptionalism, which in part explains why the dollar has been doing so well, for example. Um, I think there are basically two main reasons why that has happened over the course of 2023. Number one is a lot of spending. So, Currently, uh, we have the Inflation Reduction Act. We have the CHIPS Act. We have the Infrastructure Act. All these things have amounted to trillions of dollars that we are going to be spending. Like I think over the next few years, we're going to have about two point one trillion dollars more in terms of outlays that we need to to pay for, um, because you know we, we needed to have these things, right? But it's a bit different than what we're used to. So I think that's number one. The other big thing is we've seen a very large labor productivity move. And you know what that basically means is during the pandemic, we actually had huge declines in labor productivity. I mean, like we all suffered because not a lot of people like. I don't know who was going to the office. Maybe like the you know the the people who were who were needed, uh, like nurses and doctors and, and things like that. But for the most part, a lot of us weren't there, so there was a very large productivity spike over the course of 2022 and into 2023, and this has kind of propped up the U.S. economy. and And that did exist in other places, but only certain countries have the ability to actually fiscally. Um, spend their way and and kind of uh, boost the U.S. economy. We were one of our rather boost their economies. The U.S. is one of them.
1: Okay, so uh, if we take the idea that there's a the United States government is doing a lot of spending, you, you named a few of the acts, the bills, the Inflation Reduction Act, there's billions and billions of dollars being pumped by the government in, into the economy and it circulates around the economy and it's being like kind of forced in, right? It's not happening of its own uh, causes. It is an... an exogenous force on the economy by the government that could potentially stop or not. I don't know, but that's the question to you is like, is, are we concerned about the, the ceasing of the government doing this artificial pumping of blood through the economy? Like what's the state of that?
2: So that is part of my thesis behind why I would expect a recession to materialize probably in the first half, maybe in the first quarter of 2024 um it's purely a guess on my part uh but i would expect that that stimulus is coming to an end i mean there are going to be lingering kind of latent aspects of this for example like uh you know certain states are going to be receiving uh apportionments of government a uh, federal uh, funds in the beginning of 2024 and i think that they have until 2025 to use that so some of those things will probably keep the conditions for you know the the you know economic situation probably easier in terms of having some liquidity available and things like that, um, but ultimately a lot of that is starting to lapse already. So I would guess by you know first quarter of two thousand twenty-four that's going to end. And if that if this story is correct, if that is one of those things that it's propping up the U.S. economy right now, then I would think that that's where we're going to start to see things turn.
0: Well, that's really interesting, and I, I want to come back to that prediction. But so you're saying one of the ways to interpret this this data that that you know the the strategic interpretation is that a recession is still coming. Yeah, we did see the yield curve inversion. Uh, fiscal spending has really propped this up in the U.S. to this point. We've been outspending uh, you know other countries, uh, but that could start to turn in uh, 2024, maybe the first part of 2024, the first quarter, the the f- you know, first half of 2024 which is very interesting because 2024 is an election year for the U.S. Um, does that factor at all in, in your analysis here, David?
2: Yeah, that's what's a bit unusual about this because typically you don't want to time, you know, if if all things being equal, you would love to have that spending during an election year, right? And there's a lot of conspiracy theories about also how the central banks operate. And this isn't just in the U.S., of course, this this happens in, in a lot of countries, I don't necessarily subscribe to those views in all cases, um, and I certainly think that U.S. you know in the U.S. the Fed's independence is pretty impeachable, unimpeachable rather. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the spending was approved at a time before the midterm elections, when the Democrats had control of both houses, mm-hmm. and that's why like trying to extend that beyond this period of time is much more difficult. But the way some of the spending has been characterized in terms of you know, federal funding that goes to states, for example, the fact that that carries over into 2024 and 2025, I don't think that was an accident.
0: But it is the case that the U.S. is outspending, uh, say, Europe, where maybe some of the... You know, the, the, the economy has been less bright and we're outspending China as well. It, it, are you seeing that in the data? Is is that the case, that we're outspending these other jurisdictions, these other countries?
2: It's different for each place. You know, like Germany's going through a stagflation kind of environment right now, or at least I believe they are. You know, China has been unwilling to kind of provide the levels of stimulus that a lot of investors would have liked them to, um, in part because they're kind of stuck because in the past, a lot of that spending has been around infrastructure, for example, and now they have a lot of ghost towns and other places like they've, they've kind of already overspent and their big problem right now is private debt, which has been redistributed among like kind of local governments and other places so it's become a mix of public and private debt in some ways like they're 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 the problems kind of exist elsewhere. Um, but. The U.S. has been one place where they've definitely had the firepower available to them, while many other countries have not.
0: Can we talk about that, David? Why? Why does the U.S. have the firepower available to it to spend more? This, this idea of this, this period of time has been uh, a period of U.S. Ex- exceptionalism with respect to kind of the economy and also with respect to the amount of money we're able to find and pump back into the economy. Why is that? Where are we getting this money? Is it simply a matter of the U.S. having the world's reserve currency status and we're kind of eroding that? Are we, like, people are just willing to buy U.S. bonds or have been uh, thus far our our treasuries and that kind of thing? Is that what, you know, why the U.S. has been exceptional with respect to its its level of firepower it's able to inject? Like, what are the reasons here?
2: I think that's a big part of it, but I would kind of separated into two things. Number one is the mindset and number two is the ability, right? And the mindset, I think previously, like for, you know, a very, very, very long time, like the whole mindset around fiscal spending was tax and spend. And this is fairly prominent. I mean, it was not unquestioned globally, like this is how you do things. If I want to spend, I need to actually have the capital raised in order to spend that money. Pretty obvious, or at least you think so, because a lot of times we make these parallels of like, well, you run a government the way you run a household, right? I'm not going to spend this stuff unless I'm able to get credit for it, i.e. I can borrow in, in the market and be able to borrow that money to buy a house, for example. Well, similarly, if the U.S. government wants to spend on whatever, let's say it wants to increase defense spending, well, I'm going to pass that on and try to like tax people more or find other ways to actually raise those funds. But something changed, right? what What really kind of changed the thinking? Well, we had a modern monetary theory kind of positioned as an idea, and it came prior to the pandemic. But when the pandemic actually happened, all of us were like, well, this is a this is a catastrophe. like we like this is a world health crisis. Like just get us out of it. And to be fair, all of us were kind of culpable in this. All of us were kind of just saying, like, rescue us. We don't care what you have to do. Spend this money and just get us out of it. And so we printed money. Effectively, we're saying like, forget about tax and spend. That's not going to be like, we'll we'll just spend whatever we have to and we'll figure it out later. And that was the kind of thinking. And part of what's embedded in that thought process, at least uh, in the US, is that, yes, we can. Issue, like we, you know, we, we can issue whatever uh, bond that we need to kind of pay for this because we control the reserve currency of the world to some extent, meaning we could print ourselves out of it if we need to. F- like, functionally, this is known as monetizing the debt in some way, shape, or form. Um, we are seeing the remnants of that happening right now and, and possibly like it, it may continue into the future because effectively we're saying if we need to, you know, get more money, we will borrow more um but i think we're creating problems for ourselves because while the u.s remains the reserve currency of the world and and i'm not a conspiracy theorist i, I do believe that you know the de-dollarization story that a lot of people posit i think that it is not something that's going to just happen suddenly nor in the short it's term Not binary no mm. it's, it's it is a process and it's going to be a you know it, it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later but a decades-long process it is not a like within the next five years kind of process um well regardless of that i think the you know the the u.s government kind of perceives well we can issue this debt the problem becomes who's going to be buying all this debt because right now u.s treasury bonds are used as collateral globally and we need it like people people have the dollar in their reserves central banks in other countries primarily because well when they buy goods or move goods the dollar often acts acts as an intermediary within the balance of payments like you need the dollar somewhere in order to kind of pay for goods that you're either buying or selling or whatever you know like uh often to to, to buy but you know you need it for some purpose used inside of trade um you don't want to just carry dollars so you often carry treasuries because it's a yield-bearing asset rather than just having dollars. So that's kind of where it, it, the function it plays in the world. and that's still the function it plays. even though I, I think uh, you know you're not seeing the dollar having as strong a place in countries' reserves, it's still very moderate. like for the most part, people are carrying dollars there. but it's not going to last forever and the world is changing. There's yield curve control that's being removed in Japan, for example. So Japanese buyers who are the largest buyer of like, treasury bonds in the world, um, you know, that's not going to be there like probably in the near future, for example. Who's going to replace that? So there's a concern that they might need to be filled possibly with the Fed needing to step in and actually buy that again. Currently, we're in a period of quantitative tightening, but will we need to flip to quantitative easing? Probably fairly soon.
1: The way I understand this is that like this the fact that the United States dollars, the global reserve currency, produces this very large reservoir of power that uh, money printing can tap into, right? If everyone else is using our currency base, well, then that gives us more affordances to actually be able to to do the fiscal interventions that we've seen in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three like the ones that we that we were talking about. I, I want to ask about like, your perceived equilibrium that the economy would actually be in if it weren't for the fiscal intervention. Um, Like if you took out the variable of fiscal intervention, like what would the economy be, be looking like? Because over a year ago, everyone was worried about the recession, but then the recession never came. And so like one uh, perception might be is that, well, we just kicked the can down the road using fiscal intervention. But then another angle might be like, yeah, we did kick the can down the road and we also kind of spread out the recession over a wider period of time, which is what you kind of call. A soft landing. Where do you stand between these two things? We just, we just, the recession is going to be just as bad and we just kick the can down the road. And as soon as we stop fiscal intervention, we're going to be hit with the full weight of a recession. Or the kicking of the can down the road is the spreading out of the recession. And that's what you call a soft landing.
2: So, had it not been for the fiscal stimulus that we got, I still think that we would have been in a fairly slow moving train because it takes time for a lot of what the Fed's doing to actually percolate into the, the broader real economy, as they call it. Um, just take housing, for example. You know, like housing has done pretty well, all things considered. Whereas if you saw the more 30-year mortgage rates were somewhere around 7 to 8%, you would have said, well, things should have slowed to a crawl at this point. But there are other mitigating circumstances that have stopped that from happening, right? Because one thing is supply. Like 82% of homeowners, for example, have a uh, current mortgage, existing mortgage that's somewhere below five percent. So if you have that and you see that current mortgage rates are seven percent or eight percent, you're going to say, "Well, I I don't want. I'm not able to go out and buy another home uh, to replace the one I currently have because I'm, you know, I'm not going to switch my five percent mortgage for an eight percent mortgage, for example." So you're just sitting on that. Now, typically speaking that would still create negative flows in the economy because people still aren't moving things. Demand, of course, has been constrained on that side, but then supply kind of gets constrained. constrained so that that's so far balancing it out. But real kind of money sloshing around the system, doesn't, you know, it, it's not great. It's not a good feeling. The pandemic also changed that a little bit. And so that's a factor that we've never had to consider before as well, because one of the things that we saw during the pandemic that's extended beyond that is, Well, if I'm not going anywhere and I'm sitting in this house anyway, uh, I might as well make this house that I'm living in as nice as possible, right? So, hey, let me like uh, redo my living room. Let me like, uh, you know, upgrade my kitchen, for example. And so we are seeing spending on that side, which is kind of offset the inability for people to kind of buy and sell homes. So, you Mm -hmm. know, like these things have definitely kind of eased things such that like higher rates hasn't necessarily impacted immediately. Um, so all things considered, I would have said that we would have already seen a bigger slowdown at this point in the US economy, um, but I wouldn't have expected us to necessarily be in a recession at this point.
1: I wanna drill into the rates conversation because that is more or less a focal point for the entire world, like the, the rates of the bond market, the the treasury yields. So high treasury yields plus actual like dollar strength kind of dictates everything. Uh, I'd say, like, the, it's kind of the epicenter of of the global economy. Why, why are these things so high? Uh, and what what's your kind of like uh, just take on the state of these things? So, if my
2: narrative around government spending is true, and basically we are pro cyclically keeping the U.S. economy afloat, mm-hmm. for example, among other things, right? Like, I can explain some of the other stuff around like labor markets and other things later, but. Let's just say, assume that first thing is true. Well, then that means the Fed themselves have to keep rates somewhat higher than they would have had otherwise, right? Because, like, like we said, if we expected the economy would have been slowing down at this point because of what the Fed's doing, well, now they got to work extra hard in order to keep uh, to, to keep the economy down so inflation stays, or at least goes down in the trajectory that they wanted to, which is the 2% target. That means rates are on the higher side and the yield is there on for on the higher side. And that's probably the biggest component to it. Like it's always kind of the, the Fed decision that kind of factors into it. But then there's other stuff as well, the supply. Supply is definitely a very big aspect of, well, if the government's borrowing more, typically in, in a normal situation, added supply doesn't necessarily negatively affect the yields too much. But in this case, we can see the trajectory already is going towards them borrowing more. Like for example, they changed like last quarter, they said they were originally going to have something like $700 billion worth of, of uh, bonds that they need to either roll over or issue in terms of new debt, and they borrowed a trillion dollars. So, I mean, these things are starting to really kind of eat at that as well. And then probably like there's going to be these other smaller elements that are pushing like yields higher, like, you know, there's convexity hedging that a lot of investors do, which means that they're basically looking at the curve and saying, like, I want to be in the less- then stuff that's less sensitive to higher interest rates. So let me do that. And that, uh, you know, creates some lumpiness in terms of what they're buying and selling in the curve itself.
1: Okay. So uh, just to be clear that I understand your answer, you think that bond yields are going higher? So there's been a lot of
2: conversations around this recently, you know, like um, Larry Fink was on the tape very recently saying that he thinks 10 year yields are gonna be a 5%. Jamie Dimon said that they were gonna be in the 7% kind of range. I would expect that probably very short term, which would probably last through like, you know, Q4, for example, we will see that bond yields are going to continue higher because we are still in this environment of, you know, fiscal spending kind of propping the economy, the economy doing well. And I don't think it's a Goldilocks scenario, but it's fine. I think then you're going to start seeing things really moderate beginning in probably first quarter of 2024. And keep in mind, I'm talking about nominal interest rates. It's a very different thing to be talking about nominal versus real interest rates. Real interest rates just subtracts the impact of inflation. And I think that is what people are missing because what will, what could happen, and this is just one potential state of the world that I think is perhaps most likely, if inflation increases, and I'm talking about headline inflation because right now energy prices are on the way up, um, and a lot of that it's not artificial, but it's kind of manufactured by the market dynamics more so than actual forces of supply and demand. So I don't think it's going to last forever. But let's say like short term inflation goes up because energy prices go up. Well, that's cyclical, right? I mean, a big part of that is just cyclical inflation. Um, You know, the Fed has no control over energy prices. Not really like the, the Fed's whole shtick is that they need to get Demand down. They don't have controls for supply, which is really what's impacting the energy market, the oil market right now. Well, your real rate, if that headline number is higher, is going to still either remain stable. Or, you know, maybe possibly go a little bit higher, but, but not much higher. Like we're right now, we're looking at 10-year real rates. It's somewhere around 2.3%. And I'm using like the, you know, break-even 10 year, which you know, it assumes investors have a very long horizon or are able to predict the future over 10 years, which we can't. But anyway, that's the best measure we have. So let's say it's it's around that. That could remain stable, all things being equal, because if inflation, headline inflation keeps going up and the 10 year keeps going up. You just kind of balance those two things out but by the time we get into the beginning of 2024 into the first quarter of 2024 assuming the economy starts to kind of soften assuming energy prices like I like I believe do not last and I think we are already on a disinflationary trend um then very likely the Fed actually doesn't have to do anything here because they can just be like well oh, our job's done economy's going pretty well like the core inflation hasn't moved it's just headlines moving higher, but we don't control for that anyway. So like, we're, we're fine.
0: So, so David, I, I know in the the back half of this episode, we're going to ask you about some other asset classes and we, we covered uh, bonds, but we want to talk, uh, talk about kind of stocks, you know, equities, of course, and we want to talk about crypto, obviously, because, you know, that that's what bankless listeners really care about coming to this episode and, and how macro might affect that. But one question I had for you is about this uh, asset class that we often disparage, I think, in crypto circles: um, fiat, um, cash. And I, I recently read a Ray Dalio piece um, called it "just just extolling the virtues of cash." Right now, cash is no longer trash. You know, cash is is back again. And his case for this is basically like. You know um when you compare the you know the valuations of of stocks and uh, when you look at kind of the the bond market and then you look at sort of cash and the um, liquidity and all of the options you get on top of cash, and then of course if you're you're able to generate some kind of a yield uh, on top of that cash, ideally a, a real return you know say a five uh, to five and a half percent well it cash seems like a fairly attractive asset to to hold. Uh, and that's the posture he took which is he said is much different than how he felt about cash in you know 2020 when rates were uh very low. Uh, what's your what's your take on cash? Do you think uh cash is is back? Cash is now king. It's no longer trash. You think maybe in crypto we uh underestimate the value of um of cold hard US dollars?
2: Yeah. Uh, I like what uh, Ray Dalio said because basically he was disparaging of bonds but very uh optimistic about holding cash and Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that's your opportunity cost right around five percent five and a half percent like holding cash that's your opportunity cost that you have to beat right now if you want me to take any greater risk and that goes for any risk asset but it's really important for people in crypto to understand because you know if i believe that holding a long duration asset isn't going to pay me as much as five percent then why am i doing it i I need to kind of get that plus probably some premium, because you're telling me I got to hold something for a while in order to see the benefits of that thing to materialize. Um, I do, I think that holding cash is a pretty good prospect, you know, like, it's very different from what we're used to over the last, uh, you know, decade, at least, in terms of, well, you know, like, I might as well get into anything else, because just holding cash, I'm losing money, because the problem generally arises that if I'm just holding dollars, I'm losing money because of inflation. Like if we say that inflation is typically moving around like 2%, well then I'm losing 2% every year if I'm not invested in something. I gotta gotta make above that. Now we're saying like, well, for the most part, you know, like inflation is down to around like the three handle, for example, if we're talking about five, I'm making 2% real return, or two percentage points in t- return, like it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good, you know, all things considered, like why do I need to do it? Um, take, for example, equity risk premium, for example, the, the extra return that you get from equities over that interest rate, over the risk-free rate, for example. Right now, it's about one percentage point above that, which is probably one of the lows we've seen in a very long time two percent or one percentage point you know like like which one do, would i rather be in to do nothing i get paid more like i think that that is the big cons- like this is the big draw with cash right now
0: yeah that's funny my two favorite assets right now are, are crypto and cash and mm-hmm. i i feel like there's not a lot of space in my at least my own personal portfolio for any anything in between those two things because they're just uh they're, they're just crushing it right now but david we have a lot more to cover in the the back half of this episode What what are we going to talk about
1: yeah. Ultimately, why do we do macro shows? It's well because we want to understand what's going to happen to risk assets. That is the the punchline that we will inevitably get to on this episode. Uh, but there are some conversations that we need to meander through to get there. Uh, the October 31st, November 1st Fed meeting is on the table. We're going to have to talk about that. Uh, there's also some consumer behavior stuff, consumer credit, et cetera, uh, and also at the very high equities market. We need to navigate through these conversations in order to understand what's going on with risk assets. So we're going to get to all of that. In the second half of the show, but first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. MetaMask Portfolio is your one stop shop to manage your crypto assets and to tap into DeFi all in one place. And the most important part of that experience, buying crypto, obviously. MetaMask Portfolio's buy feature enables you to purchase crypto easily without going through centralized exchanges. Designed with you in mind, you can fund your wallet directly in just a few clicks with convenience and simplicity. What happens when you press the buy button? Rather than being limited to a single payment provider, MetaMask brings together a bunch of vetted, trustworthy providers to present you with customized quotes for your crypto purchase. Once you've funded your wallet, you'll be able to plug into DeFi with all the money verbs like swapping, bridging, and staking. But first things first, you need skin in the game. Head over to MetaMask.io slash portfolio to buy crypto the easy way. world use cases for ethereum without compromise and real world adoption is happening active addresses on cello have grown over 500 in the last six months with the cello layer 2 gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas using erc20 tokens but cello is a community governed protocol this means that cello needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard join the conversation in the cello forum follow at cello org on twitter and visit cello.org to shape the future of ethereum you know Uniswap? It's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bakelist. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap mobile wallet Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There is a link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, and we're back zeroing in on the ultimate punchline, which is what is going to happen to risk assets. But we still have a couple more points on this story to get through. I want to start, uh, David, the second half of the show with equities. Equities are very high. Uh, They have come down recently. I think they are 7% off of their recent highs, but their recent highs are almost their all time highs. I would sure love it if my crypto portfolio was 7% off of its all time highs, that would be nice. Uh, There's a disconnect there between the crypto markets and the equities markets. Um, So there's two questions here. Why are equities so high? And why is the correlation between crypto and equities so low? And what does that tell us?
2: So right now, I think there are a lot of people who are worried about the equity markets more than, uh, you know, worried about it going weaker uh, rather Mm. than it continuing uh, its current strengthening Mm. trend. Um, It's been doing well primarily because of growth. Right. Like U.S. stocks, well, any stock really likes growth, but U.S. equities in particular have done very well, because if you look around the world and things haven't been doing so well, even other countries want to get access to our U.S. stock market because they're like, well, that's one place where I'm actually getting some kind of attraction. And that kind of goes against the thesis I was saying earlier before the break about, well, if equity risk premium is so low and these things look expensive, why am I still in it? Um, mm. You're still in it because maybe you expect that that growth is going to actually materialize and higher activity above and uh, beyond what you are expecting from the earnings of a particular uh, stock or a particular company, for example. But the challenge right now is, well, we have this higher yield. And oftentimes, what really matters when we're trying to kind of look at uh, the performance of a stock is we look at the discount rate because you have to discount whatever you're you're looking at like if there's a dividend for example i discount it over the period of time over which is expected and i bring it back to pv like the present value and then i say like is that uh, sufficient for what i w- would like um if that 10 year rate is going higher does that mean that equity prices need to come down and i think this is the big you know problem people are wrestling with right now because people are looking at the spike in the 10 year yield and saying well like this is very bad for equities And historically, we don't know whether that's true. Like, it hasn't always happened that way, where just because tenure rates are higher, we've seen that, you know, the equities necessarily needs to perform worse. And by the way, this is just also the last 17 years where we've seen rates not being somewhere in that range of 1% to 4%. Like. Before that, like rates, like the median kind of like uh, performance of rates, 10-year of was somewhere around like 4 to 8%. So, like, I think a lot of people are scared right now or nervous about rates creeping up 4.7%, will it go to 5%, all this kind of, you know, like, but we've, this, this it's just the last 17 years where we haven't seen this, since 2000, like, um uh, seven or so like it's been it's been clear so i think that's something you got to keep in mind too that like it's this is a newer development but this has happened before in the world mm-hmm. the second part of your question was correlations well then why have correlations been so low and actually more recently i will say that on a risk-adjusted basis crypto has outperformed equities so mm-hmm. we've seen this this has only really been the last like two or three weeks or so but like Bitcoin, ETH, those things are actually doing much better than the NASDAQ and stocks. And I'm talking, when I say risk adjusted, I mean that I look at it on a standard deviation basis, right? Like I look at it relative to where it's been over the last, like the average of the last, say, three months or so. And this is kind of where we're at. A big part of that has to do with idiosyncratic elements inside of crypto. Like earlier this year, for example, you guys mentioned at the top of the hour, the banking crisis. Well, Bitcoin did very well for various reasons during that period of time. Um, obviously, existed as an alternative to the traditional financial system. But also, a lot of those guys that were in Silicon Valley Bank, for example, as depositors, happened to be in tech and were very amenable to buying something like Bitcoin for example. So that was a big factor. Later on in June, we got the applications for uh, Bitcoin spot ETFs. Um, So that's been a big factor and that's helped put a floor uh, under the performance of Bitcoin in particular. Um, As a result, you know, like you aren't seeing that anyone who wants to sell their Bitcoin because even though liquidity has been fairly poor and that's not just in, you know, crypto, that's also been true of TradFi as well. Well, how many people do you see saying, man, like, uh, I, I really need to sell my Bitcoin right now because I, I think that the stock market's weakening. Not many because all of us are probably kind of looking at the same thing and saying, if there is a, you know, ETF spot, Bitcoin ETF uh, that gets approved. Well, like, you know, Bitcoin could do multiples higher than, than where it currently is. Um, certainly certain percentages. I'm, I'm not saying that I like that I have a number in mind, but. If it's going to perform higher, I don't necessarily want to sell my Bitcoin right now. So I think elements of that are keeping the correlation pretty subdued at the moment.
1: Okay, so the the idea that crypto prices have just like lost in comparison to equity prices, you are kind of saying, well, that's been true up until recently. And now there is a case to be made for that inverting. Is that true?
2: It, well, insofar as the relationship, I think that, this is the challenge because the correlation is low people are assumed that that means there's no directional impact that means Mm -hmm. that like it's the magnitude of the impact as well as the direction that really matters Mm -hmm. directionally speaking crypto still does tend to follow like stocks to some extent it hasn't always through the course of this year like certainly there's meaningful kind of change between what we saw in 2022 when the correlation was at like upwards of 70 to 80% compared to where we are now, which is, you know, coefficients around 20. Um, Well, you know, that does suggest that there are periods where it's not even moving in tandem, but doesn't need to reverse necessarily. It could still kind of move directionally the same. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be true, particularly uh, once we see the Fed pivot, and move to an uh, you know an easy monetary uh, view, and and mm-hmm. that will happen. And I think that could be beneficial for both crypto and stocks. Um, but I think we have seen that crypto prices have been so washed out as well. It just doesn't really take a lot to actually move yeah. prices higher from here.
1: Kind of hopping around here just to get some loose ends out of the way. Uh, student loans have started uh, payments again. This is a new thing as of just, I think, like last week or the week before. Um, so like for for the first time since COVID, since student loan payments were paused during COVID, due to COVID, uh, students have started to have to pay the pay their debts, pay their interest on their debts. Uh, how will this impact the economy?
2: Yeah. I mean, already we are seeing that like defaults are rising. Loan delinquencies are rising. um, And I think student loan repayments are just another aspect of that. I think in and of itself, it probably wouldn't have been like a hugely negative detriment to the economy. But in conjunction with everything else that we're seeing, I think that it's pretty meaningful. And, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were saying before about mortgage rates and housing and just credit in general. I think that the situation has so far been able to be okay for the most part. You know, like for example, if you roll back to March, a lot of us were looking at the regional banks and saying, oh, the, oh, crap, these guys are all sitting on like commercial real estate loans and other things, like that portfolio could be problematic. It's still problematic. Nothing has changed about it. It's just that we've been able to kind of ignore it because we put a band-aid on the situation. Now that band aid is starting to come off. And I think that all these things, like in conjunction with with the whole like situation, like in, in of the credit situation uh, at writ large, I think that's where we could see a problem for the banks materializing. Like we aren't done with that situation yet. I think that there's still another leg of this. We just have taken a pause on this.
0: So does this uh, maybe student loans starting up again maybe contribute to your recession case in uh, you know the early 2024?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely think that this factors into what I'm seeing with the Fed, what I'm seeing in with the U.S. economy, for example. Uh, you know, I think that come November, the Fed is very unlikely to move because we will at that point have seen the, like the completion of like the writer's strike in Hollywood, the United Auto Workers strike. You have student loan repayments. I mean, all these things are factoring into Q3 and they had just revised their estimates for GDP growth higher. So I think these, these, uh Factors are going to undercut that view, and you know, keep in mind too that, like, their whole approach, and I think a lot of people like the, the pushback I get, uh, you know, because I don't have the consensus view. I think um, a lot of people kind of push back and say, like, "Well, are we doing okay though?" Like I said, like, yeah, when you say
0: is consensus view that we actually have achieved a soft landing, that recession is
2: probably not going to happen. Would you say that's the consensus view right now? The consensus view is definitely that we haven't achieved it not past tense, but we will achieve. That is the expectation right now. The expectation is that come Q4, like the Fed will have done everything in its power to basically land this plane safely, which is to say it's slowed the economy enough to keep inflation down, but it has averted a recession. That would be like their definition of what a soft landing kind of looks like. And a lot of people believe we are in fact in that Goldilocks scenario. And they point to a lot of things. is okay, labor market's okay except that when you kind of dig into the data, like, and you go on a micro level piece by piece, it doesn't really look that great. You kind of brought up the stuff already with the student loan repayments, for example, labor market data, like people aren't getting paid what they were getting paid six months ago. You know, you see new entrants to the market, you know, like there were headlines from Walmart, even on the the white collar side of like people coming into like Goldman Sachs or whoever, like those jobs, like for new entrants into those, those companies they're not getting paid what they were getting paid a year ago. And that's a big part because even though we are seeing that number tick up slightly in terms of the job openings, like the quits rate has actually stabilized. And that suggests that people have far less ability to negotiate the salary they want, mm-hmm. like under being underpaid, being like, you know, like underemployment, is very different from unemployment. And that is still a, a problem that actually is rising in the us
0: So we might still have a lot of unemployment so that that's why you david have the the non-consensus view right now of hey this this landing is going to be a lot bumpier than we thought and they will probably we'll start to feel the bumps in uh, q1 of next year in the form of uh, a recession uh so l- let me ask you let's walk through your concept all the way to conclusion okay so let's say we get uh some form of a recession in the first half of of 2024 um okay what does this mean so what does this mean for uh well first of all how deep of a recession are we talking about and and how long uh and then also what would this mean for fed rates in this
2: in this scenario yeah so i would say quarter to quarter to quarter this is kind of broadly where like uh this is broadly how i'm thinking about things and i have higher conviction you know in what i expect for q4 versus like first quarter of 2024 and, first and second quarter of 2024 makes sense right like the farther the future kind of goes out the less uh, of a crystal ball i have and i don't think i have a great crystal ball in the first place but like i do think that probably um i'm very constructive for q4 and i still think that's going to materialize and i think st- like crypto and maybe stocks but mainly crypto is going to do well in the back half of Q4, but the first quarter is very, very murky for next year, because I think that's the point at which we're actually going to see these things really hit, right? Um, Whether it's going to be like temporary or not, the energy prices are still going to be a constraint on just spending on in the manufacturing side. And, you know, like we're all going to be moving further and further away from all the production that people just kind of put in place because, you know, those fiscal stimuluses that I was kind of talking about, well, a big part of that had to do with if I was a manufacturer right now, for example, I was getting subsidized by the US government. Like, you know, like maybe they were, they, let's say they were going to give me like a, a million bucks. They're, they'd say, hey, put in $2 million of your own money and we'll talk. And that's what they did. And then like we had this support coming from manufacturing. Well, that's all going to end. And that ends in the first quarter, for example. We'll get some residual spending, like I was kind of talking about, but it's not in my mind going to be a good quarter. But then, I think the second quarter of 2024, it becomes a little bit more clear again. And it's still uncertain. I think that it's still kind of hard to predict. But my guess is the Fed will probably need to start cutting rates or at least move themselves on the path of cutting rates probably by May or June of next year. Because
0: the economy won't be looking so hot because it'll feel very much more like we're headed towards a recession or are in a recession already. Yes?
2: Yes. I mean, there's two things. Number one, of course, like the main objective of the Fed is to target inflation. So mm. all of this like is irrelevant insofar as it gets inflation down. Um, but also, you know, it cares about full employment. And there's also other concerns. And this is where kind of the fiscal situation becomes difficult to kind of get a handle on because a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, theory that goes into, well, the government spending more inflation kind of goes in more, which is, of course, why rates are higher and why the Fed needs to maintain a hawkish tone. But once that kind of comes off, you allow for that to happen. But what if things were already disinflationary? Like one thing that I think people don't realize is like you know, and I'm not trying to be a crackpot about this. You can actually look at the data. Like San Francisco Fed actually published data that looks at the breakdown between cyclical inflation and acyclical inflation. And cyclical inflation is aligned with the business cycle. Acyclical inflation is everything else. Acyclical inflation peaked back in January of 2022. The Fed started hiking rates in March, 2022. So already that component of inflation was already on the way down well before the Fed started hiking rates. So, really, what the Fed has been trying to get down is cyclical inflation. And that just peaked about two months ago. So, like, already, like, this is moving the trajectory that the Fed wants it to be. So, it's really not a crazy idea to think that the Fed already could be in a place where it's thinking about cutting rates or wants to cut rates. But it won't say that. And it won't move to that. Like, all things being equal, like, Jay Powell is actually fairly dovish. And another point is, like, he controls this board. And I think this is something that well understood, especially from people who aren't Fed watchers on a day-to-day basis. Like, I care what other people are saying on that board. Don't get me wrong. It's important. But, like, he controls that board. He controls what that board is going to do. And that is a power of this central bank in particular. I mean, that happens for a lot of central banks out there in the world. I just cover emerging markets. You can kind of see which ones do and which ones don't. But in the US, like a lot of them will fall in line with what he wants. And I do believe that he is dovish and that is his bias. So that, wait, like, wait. wait he's dovish,
0: life. but with a tough guy, Clint Eastwood, Paul Volcker type of front. But he's dovish in the back.
2: I think that, like, his bias is to be dovish, but. The rhetoric is hawkish because that's where they ah. need to be right now. <laughs> and so fascinating how, how
0: this game works, right? This, this Business in the front, party game. in the back. Yeah, well, he, dovish in the back, I guess. So oh, not, there's
2: something called verbal intervention too, which is fantastic, which is the idea right. that sometimes it's not even what they have to do in terms of actually cutting or hiking rates. It's what they say in right. order to move the markets. It's it's a lot, of, a lot of chess that goes on. So
1: verbal intervention, is that just what we call bluff?
2: yeah (laughs) that's one way to phrase it yeah (laughs) so
0: so what happens in this scenario david walk us through we talked about kind of fed rates and we talked about kind of you know the economy and recession what happens to our risk on assets maybe more specific because i'm actually not sure what crypto is i guess i'd I'd more call it a risk on asset we talked a little bit about equities but what happens to crypto in this environment when we're looking at uh, 2024 uh, q1 and q2 because let me tell you David, uh 2024 was supposed to be the year of the bull, okay, for crypto, at least, you know, the start of an epic bull run. Um what what do you see in the cards? Uh can you bring us back down to earth in the signals that you're looking at with with macro? If this story comes true, then how does it bode for our crypto assets in 2024?
2: Yeah. One thing I didn't really address was the timeline in terms of how long the stuff will last and how deep it's going to be. And the truth is, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone really does, you know, like my best guess would be that it's going to be a mild recession. That's not going to last too long. Um, and if that's going to be the case and we start seeing the Fed cut rates, then actually that could still be a fairly like a uh, decent time for crypto in particular. You know, I think that we could still see that. Uh, you know, assuming that the regulatory situation kind of manifests in a way that's amenable to this, uh, you know, like the crypto could actually still do fairly well. I think that some of those things are going to be put into Q4. For example, you know, expectations surrounding uh, a Bitcoin spot ETF, for example, or the things surrounding the halving for Bitcoin, um, perhaps, but maybe not inclusive of what's going on with the Dankun fork. But like, I think that, Those things will probably be placed better for a lot of people into like November or December of this year, rather than being played in the first quarter of next year, for example. So next year, I think will still be a fairly volatile period, which is to say, like, probably uncertain. Like, I really don't know. Like, I think like for me, like first quarter 2024, is still very much a black box, but I think we'll come out of it into a better, more constructive world in the second quarter of next year.
0: Okay, David, I feel like I've gotten a lot of uh, questions in, in my mind answered. And I, I want to maybe turn uh, back to kind of where, where David uh, Hoffman, my, the other David, on, the David on my left, uh, began this episode with how weird this macro environment is. And, and you also um, s- said the same, David David on, on my right. And this this was uh, a tweet that we pulled out for our weekly roll-up uh, last week from a Kobiese letter, the Kobiese letter. Current situation, one, stocks are falling like a recession is coming. Two, oil prices are rising like there's no recession in sight. Three, interest rates are rising like we have 10% inflation. Four, gold is falling like inflation is gone. Five, housing prices are rising like rates are falling. Six, commercial real estate is falling like it's 2008. Nothing adds up here. And I think, David, I want to make sure I understood you as we kind of um, close out this episode. I think your theory of everything is the reason why all of this stuff is weird is we have had some pretty unprecedented circumstances on the back of COVID, particularly with respect to the U S anyway, fiscal stimulus, and that will, that has artificially distorted a lot of things and has led to a lot of, you know, the results that I just read out and that will start to kind of dry up, uh, in the beginning of 2024. And um, we will get back to a situation that is uh, more in line with with kind of reality once that that drying up actually happens. Is that sort of your theory of of everything? Your theory of why things are so weird? Is it basically like, yeah, COVID, fiscal policy, spending—that's why it's been so weird in the U.S. That explains one through six of the things that that I just mentioned. Um, yeah, how
2: would you sum this up? The pandemic definitely created some unanticipated, cert- like outcomes. Um, you know, fiscal s- spending was a big product of that, but also like the lay the way the labor market kind of works changed significantly as a result as well. Because what we saw was a lot of uh, baby boomers, for example, leave the the job market, and as a result, you know, like we are left with higher job openings than they would be previously, at least anything that we've encountered um, in very recent economic history. Um, So there are elements of that that are creating kind of strange effects that make it difficult to kind of interpret uh, the data. You know, I think that we're interpreting the data or finding new ways to interpret the data in the context of how the pandemic has kind of affected our lives. And we haven't really fully kind of materialize it. But there's other elements too that we haven't even talked about. And, you know, like AI is a big one, like, like the way artificial intelligence is probably contributing to the disinflationary trend isn't being well discussed. Like when I talk to people in economic circles, for example, they want to talk to me about demographics and they're right to, because they're saying like, hey, we don't really have as many uh, young workers in the economy anymore. Like the birth rates are declining and this isn't just in the U.S., Mm -hmm declining globally outside of a few pockets in maybe some developing countries. Uh, But, you know, like when I look at it, AI is also going to be a very big effect that's going to displace workers and probably lead to greater efficiency and lower input costs. So, you know, like that's something that isn't well understood in terms of how that's also going to impact us and therefore what's going to impact the Fed and therefore how we're going to be impacted in terms of the like asset classes and investing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I'm coming out of this episode bullish on the the two assets that I was bullish on coming into it, which is uh, crypto and cash uh, You know, for me, for my portfolio. But of course, none of this has been financial advice. And David, you've been so kind to lend us your macro brain on today's episode. want to thank you very much for that.
2: No, thanks for having me.
0: Bankless Nation, got to end with this. Of course, I'll rearticulate. None of this Has been financial advice. Uh, Crypto is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.